all of this stuff is incredibly serious, right? There's $350 million supplied in MarginFi today. It's one protocol in a sea of protocols, right? In a space that has struggled for validation from the mainstream, right? We're still incredibly early. We have a lot of institutional players that are evaluating the resiliency of our platform. I wanted to, to build around these issues to fix them, to iterate, and to show the capacity that we have to build resilient systems. This episode is brought to you by Marinade. Marinade is the most optimal way to stake on Solana. You can use their liquid staking token, MSOL, or if you want to stake without any of the DeFi or PEG risk, use their new product called Marinade Native. It's the easiest way to stake your soul. Go check out Marinade today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we're joined by Ruder from Solon and Edgar from MarginFi. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Hello. Thanks for having us. Pumped to have you on. The community has been waiting to have this podcast, so I'm very excited to have you on. I think Ruder's on 7 a.m. time and Edgar is at 11 p.m. at night, so everybody better enjoy this episode for that effort. Um, I'm sure everyone knows what MarginFi and Solend is. Uh, we might go into detail. We will go into detail on that, uh, but they're both borrowing and lending protocols that are on Solana. Very successful. But the reason why we're having this episode is not only to explore those protocols, but to talk about uh, the risk engines. And all of this kind of started uh, about a week ago or so. I think it's a week and a half ago. This was December 12th. So yeah, seven days ago. Um, there's some drama that happened in the Solana ecosystem very quickly. So to introduce the parties, there's MSOL, which is Marinade Soul. Marinade, there's Marinade and Jito. They're the two liquid staking providers and staking providers in Solana. Um, MSOL is a liquid staking token. And a lot of users were going throughout Solana DeFi and using MSOL as collateral, which is what we want. Um, a lot of them were using pretty high leverage because especially with the points ecosystems that we have throughout Solana right now, you have a large incentive to interact with these DeFi protocols a lot. And sometimes they're providing MSOL as collateral. And then they were borrowing against that to take out maybe more SOL, a USDC, and actually looping that trade to get some really high leverage. Um, obviously, MSOL is a liquid staking token. It's a derivative of SOL. So usually those trade at around the same value. Uh, we've seen even in Ethereum ecosystem, sometimes the LST and the underlying assets, sometimes DPEG shortly for market reasons, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they should converge. Um, but during that, we had a, a whale who sold about $8 million, I think, $8 million worth of MSOL um, suddenly on the market on December 12th. Uh, instead of like unstaking the MSOL and then just selling it that way or without doing it OTC, just sold it on the market. And there wasn't enough liquidity and it led to, I think, around a 15% DPEG, which affected all the MSOL that was this collateral and DeFi and it led to liquidations throughout Solana. Every protocol handled this slightly differently and that's why we have you two on because we want to talk about how did your project handle that liquidation that we saw there? And then also just how your protocol was built to deal with that type of scenario in the first place. Maybe the sequence of events, uh, we should explain a bit more. So what, what happened was the the guy or whatever sold, market sold for whatever reason, and that caused a massive uh, uh, red candle. And and I, I tweeted about it and I put a lot of question marks and I was like, what the hell? Uh, and then uh, somebody from Solend, so OX Ripley's co-tweeted it. Right. And then he said, this is why Solend uses the Sol Oracle for pricing staked Sol assets. Liquidity for staked Sol assets can be shaky at times. Everything running smoothly here. And then that mixed some or, or caused some mixed reactions. Some people from like uh, uh, not actually just margin, but probably most notably margin. And so that's kind of where it all started. So let's maybe kind of replay. Yeah, if I could jump in here. Yeah, since it's relevant. Um because, yeah, there's definitely been a lot of misunderstanding about why we do this. 
And it is a very nuanced topic, um, not really fit for Twitter. So it's, it's pretty good that we're doing a podcast like this so that we can explain it more in depth. Um, like even people like Frankie had, uh, you know, some issues on understanding it. So, um, so yeah, the underlying thing is that we, we use the Solana Oracle instead of, uh, the Amsol Oracle for the Amsol asset. And the reason for that is that it's a lot more reliable. So throughout the last two years, we've seen many issues with the Amsol Oracle. Um, and you know, this is to be expected somewhat given that, uh, there are way more quoters on the Sol Oracle. For example, there's 31 versus 14. Um, the confidence intervals are typically 80 to 90% higher for Sol. And historically, like, as I said, there have just been a lot of issues with MSOL. Um, probably, you know, like half a dozen to a dozen times, uh, there have been like minor DPEGs and whatnot. So throughout all these issues, we, we just realized that it's safer to use the underlying. And of course, there are some trade-offs, but basically at the end of the day, we, d we believe that the trade-offs are in favor of this. Um, so to go into slightly more detail, uh, this is still resilient because Solend is underestimating the price of MSOL um, because you know the, Sol, the price of Sol is always going to be lower than MSOL. So a DPEG would have to be quite significant, more than that underestimate, for this, this to be problematic for Solend. So like in this recent example, Nothing happened on Solend. There were no wrongful liquidations or uh, any liquidations really because um, the buffer was enough to uh, to account for that. And like you might, you know, it's, it's pretty uh, weird looking to use like the different asset price. But in this case, uh, it's actually okay because MSOL is not borrowable um, because you could imagine usually if you're underestimating the price of an asset, then that would let people borrow more than they should. Right. Um, but it's not borrowable. So that's not an issue here. Um, and then to explore like the, the issues with this a little bit, hypothetically, if MSOL went to zero, Sol would probably crash as well. In which case, using the MSOL Oracle alone wouldn't save you from bad debt. Like if Sol is crashing, you're going to have issues anyway. But granted, like pretending that Sol didn't crash. Uh, we do have other mitigations in place uh, that would limit damage. So, for example, we have a global outflow limit, which we added in V2, that limits the amount of funds that can be withdrawn in a, in a short period of time, similar to how uh, Wormhole has something similar for bridging. Uh, and also, basically, the probability of MSOL just getting hacked and going to zero is like basically this tiny, tiny non-zero po possibility, like Epsilon. Uh, because the contracts are super uh, simple and like you can't compare something like that to UST as McBrennan did. Um, it's, it's quite a different situation. Um, so yeah, basically those are the reasons that, to sum it up. It is a trade-off, but we'd rather protect users from real recurring issues that we've seen multiple times in the past. Irrational DPEG like this, just a, a whale selling something off or like kiss, uh, Oracle issues due to quotas just uh, having issues. And yeah, we'd rather protect users from these real things versus this theoretical issue that we have other mitigations in place anyway, and it's like super unlikely. So it's really a pragmatic, practical approach to our, our risk. And uh, basically, I was just a little bit disappointed that, you know, 
McBrennan and Margin Fi decided to publicly attack us about this, which just shows a, a lack of understanding of how our risk management works and a lack of goodwill, um, especially since uh, there, there was an actual oversight that we found on your side, uh, a real loss of funds vulnerability with the, the way that the WST ETH oracles uh, were handled. So, yeah, just wanted to lay that out and, um, yeah, we can have a discussion about it. Got one thing I would like to add, Edgar, maybe before we can hear from you is, Ruder, maybe can you just explain for listeners that um, maybe don't know how all this works that well, and that you were talking about MSOL should basically always follow the price or be slightly above the underlying. And a large part of that is just because there's arbitragers that would come in because of how the epoch period is only two and a half days. Could you maybe just explain that, how a DPEG can happen, but it should not last for a sustained period of time, and they should, at the end of the day, converge? Yeah, for sure. So MSOL started off one-to-one with Sol, but as staking rewards are accrued, uh, basically the price of MSOL goes up. And this is in contrast to another approach that has been taken, which is rebasing tokens, which basically instead the price of the asset is always the same, but your your balance is always increasing. Um, for example, this is how staked ETH works um, on uh, Ethereum with Lido. And that's why they have like wrapped staked ETH, which converts it into the MSOL style thing. Um, and so basically, these are like different assets that get traded. They have different tickers. And, you know, prices are just determined by order books. Um, so it is always possible that someone uh, can trade something out of where its theoretical underlying value is. Um, but yes, in with MSOL, there is a, an epoch. So every, every period, uh, you can... Unstake, you can stage your soul for unstaking. And then at the end of that period, um, you can get it back. And basically, so you can, re- you can redeem the underlying, which creates this arbitrage opportunity anytime that it depegs. And, uh, this is, you know, uh, this really, uh, means that the, the, the intrinsic value of MSOL is like pretty tethered to, to the underlying. So to, to make it simple, for example, you saw that MSOL was trading at a steep discount like it did in this scenario, but you had a strong belief that it was going to get it, regain its peg because it's the marinade contracts, for example, are not hacked. You could get, you could buy MSOL on the market, which is say trading at you know 80 cents on the dollar, and you go put that and try to unstake SOL and you'd receive that SOL that's trading at 100% of the value and you would cap- capture that arbitrage. So um, Edgar, I'd love to just hear you know your thoughts on you know how you think about this and maybe some of the trade-offs between the two strategies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me on. I've been obviously thinking about this problem, uh, you know, more holistically, uh, definitely uh, quite a bit since we had the conversation online. Oracles are also, I mean, just a uh, very critical component in a lot of DeFi systems. And I think a component that has had like stability issues on a number of fronts uh, throughout their entire existence, right? And so I think they're 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 it's easy to understand why they're a point of anxiety uh in in relying on these systems, right? Um with MSOL specifically and our view on how we think about pricing assets, uh in my view, the number one challenge that a lending protocol has in front of itself is managing solvency risk, right? Uh solvency risk in principle is uh pretty simple. Right, uh, it's the risk that liabilities on the platform outpace the value of assets on the platform, 
and that lenders, those that have deposited into the platform, are not able to withdraw their full value, right? Uh, that they've lended. From an addressable market perspective, I think that lenders outnumber borrowers on a user basis, something like 99.9% to one, right? Uh, when we think about how we're building MarginFi in the long run, right? From an app perspective, from a user experience perspective, uh, we are primarily thinking about lenders. Uh, because if you look at like the way that an average person interacts with the personal finance system in front of them, right? Crypto or not crypto, uh, the very first piece to building passive wealth, right? is compounding that wealth through lending it out somewhere and accruing some kind of yield, right? This was, this was when I pitch, when I pitch margin fi, when I pitch DeFi to, you know, the, the, the friends that I have that are outside of crypto, right? I always bring up the, the bank account, uh, that was supposed to give them all this yield, right? Uh, and the way that it kind of never happened, right? Even though bank accounts technically, at least in the US, right? And in many other places around the world, they do provide some kind of yield for your capital. Uh, generally speaking, this idea that we were sold on, right, that there would be yield, uh, you know, for our money that we have to put away, uh, didn't really come true, right? And I think that lending platforms like MarginFi, like Solend, uh, like Ave, like Compound, right, uh, like others in the space are uh, an important bridge to this problem, right, and to helping users attain that real yield. Uh, that means, right, that when we think about risk, we are often thinking about the lenders. I would actually say that we, generally speaking, uh, you know, prioritize lenders before we prioritize borrowers. We found borrowers to be much more sophisticated players, uh, ones that are a lot more flexible to manage the implementation of their various strategies uh, and generally adaptable, right? And so they can kind of live, uh, you know, with a higher bar for action and reaction uh, to the market. And they're generally happy to do that. They're happy to pay for it, right? Uh, we get one of the most common points of feedback we get these days is that borrowers are willing to pay more on their platform, uh, on our platform than they're building today, right? Uh, than they're paying today. Uh, and that just speaks to the elasticity of their behavior, right? Uh, with respect to Oracle, to address your, your question directly, Garrett, uh, we like to price assets to their market price, uh, agnostic of what asset we're talking about, right? Uh, that doesn't just mean MSOL. It also means, or you know, any other LST, it also means stable coins, right? Uh, if you look at USDC, USDT, right? These are, these are uh, assets that are designed to be pegged to the US dollar, right? In practice are generally pretty close but have seen DPEGs on their own, right? Now, you know, to Ruder's point, I think there are some really, there, there are some interesting trade-offs and ultimately, uh, you know, these trade-offs are like subjective questions that need to be answered by protocol designers, by the communities that support those protocols, right? Uh, I think it's, it's very valid to say, look, uh, we want to protect against some kind of DPEG, uh, because we feel that the asset will come back to some theoretical price uh, and we can save our 
borrowers from liquidation on that front, right? Uh, it's a valid perspective. Um, and I can see how that perspective gets backed up, right? Um, at the same time, I mean, finance in, is an industry, I think, is a, a dangerous place where a lot of uh, a lot of theory, right, has fallen apart. Uh, we saw this, I mean, in 2008, right? Sometimes even down to just the distribution assumptions that are made under the risk models that are put together, right? This is one reason why all of the modeling that we do uh, off-chain that helps us decide on the risk parameters, they're implemented Marginify, and I'm happy to talk about that if that's interesting. Uh, but we're leveraging tail risk scenarios, right? And there's a lot of time spent on designing what a tail risk scenario means, uh, because assuming that things will continue to go well is, um, you know, I, I think the antithesis of, of risk modeling, right? At least from my perspective. Uh, and so to that end, right, uh, we continue to look at market prices regardless of the asset that we're considering. Now, this does mean that in a scenario where, you know, MSOL DPEGs, right, uh, for long enough, and users are liquidated, and then MSOL repegs, right? In theory, assuming that the duration risk is something that the platform could handle, uh, things things would be better, right? There would be less liquidations. Uh, but liquidating users earlier, uh, from our perspective, is a uh, is is a matter of safety, right? It's a it's it's a it's a position that we take to say, look, the first thing that we want to protect is insolvency on the platform, right? Ultimately, that uh, affects the lenders positively more than anything else, right? And we are willing to forego the opportunity to boost our, uh, you know, the potential solvency that borrowers have on the platform uh, in order to maintain safety, right? Uh, This could be viewed as like a more conservative view, right? And I think we're fine with that. I think lending in general, is a conservative effort. Uh, but it's something that we think is important to react to in case MSOL doesn't peg back, right? Uh, which which we've seen with, you know, with other assets, right? Um, there's a number of DPEGs that we can talk about, historically speaking. Um, in the case of MSOL specifically, MarginFi didn't have any meaningful liquidations. Uh, and that's because the market price oracle that we use uh, is an, it follows a, an exponential moving average with a one-hour time window, right? And all that means is that it reacts a little bit more slower than market price does uh, to factor in for stochastic volatility. Now, that in itself is not quite as conservative as it could be, uh, even if we're following the line of argument that uh, the market price is what should be looked at, right? And so you can start seeing immediately how like, the the last layer, and I don't know if you guys had a chance to read uh, Gauntlet published an article today. Uh, Tarun wrote it um, on you know just risk management in DeFi, kind of high level themes there, implementation approaches. One of the, the great points that uh, you know that he made that I think is the hardest to explain more broadly is that the last line of risk management is always subjective, right? Um, you can take best practice approaches, you can take a principled implementation. But at the end of the day, you have to make business calls. Uh, and so we do make a business call to run a market oracle, uh, but also to run it uh, under a moving average implementation. And we, we like that middle that we find with that. Yeah, I'd like to take a minute to respond to some of these. So, I mean, so I think 
our goal is, our number one goal is to be practical about risk management. Um, and basically, we feel that the MSOL Oracle in its current state is not the best way to secure hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course, pricing assets exactly to their market price is the ideal. Uh, if the Oracle was more reliable, we would definitely switch to it. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the case, especially given what we've seen in the past and just this last week. Um, a single player who is, you know, uh, called a whale by us, but that's actually a really small user. Like there are tons of people in the world, uh, in the world that can uh, affect the price like that, right? Um, and this is like a an unintentional side effect. But imagine if someone was doing this maliciously, right? Uh, so basically, yeah. I'd also like to say, like we we wouldn't really say we could prioritize lenders over over borrowers. I just think we uh, we value everyone. Um, and again, like this is the, the practical approach that we've taken that we feel that given all the trade-offs, uh, this, this basically results in less issues. Um, and just want to respond to something you said as well. You, you mentioned like, uh, liquidating early, uh, like you prefer to liquidate early in, in many cases, liquidating too early is the same as wrongful liquidation. Like we, we've seen some Oracle issues in the past where the prices were off by like, 10, even 20% for no good reason. Like, and the, uh, the way that pith quoters quote is a little bit of a black box. So like, we don't really know exactly what was going on there. Um, but you know, th this liquidating too early too uh, eagerly can result in uh, wrongful liquidations, which we definitely want to avoid for, uh, for our borrowers as well as, you know, we want to keep lenders safe. Um, and then finally, you, you mentioned that you guys use the EMA, which uh, it, it definitely has some benefits, but it, it also has some, some trade-offs as well, right? Because uh, you mentioned, yeah, you, you would be liquidating more slowly, uh, which in the context of a competitive environment, that basically means you'd be the last to start liquidating. And potentially that could be really bad if there are any cascading effects, uh, right? Uh, you, you'd essentially be liquidating at the, the worst prices and your users would be getting the, the worst end of the stick. So, yeah, just wanted to mention those. Um, well, I mean, in, in the context of like an MSOL situation, not as, or not, as, not as late as you guys would be, right? Because the whole proposition here is that using the Soul Oracle helps maintain a stable price on the platform and therefore doesn't open up positions to liquidation, right? So it's like the one theoretical side of the spectrum is the second that market price uh, hits, uh, you know, underneath a liquidation threshold, right? Uh, things are exposed to liquidation. That instant second, right? Uh, market price on its own is something that, you know, the, the definition of that is something we can debate, right? Uh, because assets don't have one price, in the world, right? Like if you look up the price of Bitcoin, like that is a theoretical price that doesn't actually exist. Uh, the price for any given asset is what you can get for it. Uh, you know, the, the market price for, the, for a given asset is what you can get for it on a given exchange. Um, but, uh, you know, as you move along the spectrum, you start to employ some kind of moving average approach, right? Uh, and it is true that you could have a smaller time window for a moving average. 
Uh, we like the one hour time window. Um, I mean, it's far from finalized, I think, in the long run, right? Uh, oracles are definitely uh, focused on stability, most of all. Uh, we think Pith is um, head and shoulders above any other Oracle implementation that I've seen in crypto. Um, and, you know, not only do we like the data providers that are behind the scenes, we built relationships with, you know, a good portion of them as we've gotten to know them and become more reliant on the infrastructure. Uh, but some of our related entities are uh, data providers themselves. Uh, and recently we've been pushing for more providers. I don't know if you guys saw this on, uh, you know, publicly, this is something that that Mac is running as well, uh, pushing for more providers to start contributing to Pith, right? Because one of the best ways to improve the robustness of an Oracle uh, platform is to diversify the data providers. And it's something that we've, you know, proactively started, uh, you know, trying to help, right? Not just from an internal perspective, but uh, from a partnership perspective as well. Uh, we've, you know, obviously, because I know I'm shilling Pith a lot, we've had great conversations with Switchboard. Uh, they're an Oracle provider that we use and we love, uh, you know, for a, a different set of reasons. I think they come at Oracle implementation and general service providing from a different perspective or product offering from a different perspective. Uh, I think ultimately this, this, this involves making some kind of, uh, liquidation and user smoothness experience trade off, right? You can always be safer if you liquidate earlier. Um, I, I don't, think I agree with the notion of the term wrongful liquidation. And uh, that is, unless it speaks to a mechanism failure, right? Uh, mechanism design, I think, can create unfavorable liquidations, right? Maybe liquidations that users are not happy with. Uh, but the term wrongful liquidation, in my view, should be reserved for uh, mechanism failure, right? Where mechanisms don't act as designed and uh, you get problems from that perspective, right? I think the difference between liquidating earlier or later, that's uh, much more subjective, comes with, uh, comes with the trade-offs that we've been discussing. Yeah, I mean, to, to expand on the wrongful liquidation part, I think in this uh, specific example scenario, um, it was more of just a, a price movement and the Oracle was reflecting what was happening on the markets. Um, in the past, we have seen like, uh, Oracle staleness issues and uh, just weird uh, pricing that doesn't match up with anything that we actually see on the market, which uh, we, we would use the term wrongful liquidation for. Um, and that said, like, yeah, I know I realize like I've been uh, mentioning Kiss and, uh, you know, our Oracles a lot. Uh, I also want to say that we, we love them as well. We've worked with Kiss and SwitchForward super closely since we launched. Uh, we were actually like using Pith in their beta. And I think we were like the first project that launched. We'd launched like a day or two after they uh, went to mainnet. We were basically like blocked to launch um, by that. So yeah, we, we really love them. And uh, we think that they, they do amazing work as well. All right. So um, I want to wrap up this Oracle chat and the incident in a, in a sense with uh, the DPEG. So I do want, because uh, I think we, we got a little technical on multiple fronts there. I do want to maybe do a final session for just takeaways, right? Um, so I want each of you to kind of maybe uh, uh, um, uh, discuss maybe for, so because people are obviously listening to this, maybe they want to uh, use Solana DeFi, Solana Borrow Lend, 
Um, maybe they're bigger players, maybe they're smaller players, whatever. What should they take away from this incident and how you guys approach risk management in general? And uh, we can do, um, I guess, Edgar first and then Ruder after. Sure, yeah. I think there's, <laughs> I think the main takeaway is that as an industry, we should be talking way more about risk management. Like we had a bunch of conversation online, right? Tarun published an article, Ruder and I are on this call. We should 100x it, right? Uh, the conversation in general. And I think, you know, I was thinking from the perspective of a user, if I'm going into this, you know, situation, I'm trying to figure out which platform to trust. There is a sea of information. It, I think, can be a hundred times cleaner than it is today. I think all of this can be communicated to users much, much better. Um, that's the main takeaway for me. Uh, it's pretty abstract, right? I think the second thing I would I would think about is who cares about this, right? Which developers, which teams are taking the time to talk about it, to uh, to highlight their progress, their evolution, right? This is, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll call us out here. Like, this is something I think we can be doing a lot better, right? Uh, we've done a ton of risk management work behind the scenes. Uh, we're running some really interesting multi-layer forecasting models that are looking at tailored scenarios when it comes to market depth, when it comes to depth recovery time, when it comes to price volatility. Uh, but, you know, Camino's got a great dashboard that highlights a ton of interesting data points that users can go and access that we don't have, right? I think we could be doing a lot better on that front, visualizing this information. Uh, and, you know, it's inspiring to, you know, to see people kind of pushing in this direction. So to me, you know, the, the takeaway here, right, is like we could debate a lot of these details, but I think in general, uh, this conversation needs to be happening a lot more and it needs to be synthesized a lot better for users. Yeah, I'd agree that uh, risk management could definitely be talked about more. It's a little bit of a tragedy of uh, like capitalism or something where, it, and what I mean by that is that uh, that kind of content doesn't get all the engagement, right? Like people want to see you being risk on and launching shit coins and doing those types of things, right? High LTVs. Um, but it, it's kind of a thankless job too, right? Like no one, no one appreciates it until uh, you save millions of dollars from, uh, from loss. But if you do save them, like no one notices it, right? Um, so yeah, it's a, a little bit of a, a, a tricky one to, get everyone talking about it. So I, I definitely appreciate your efforts in trying to get this out more. And uh, we want to support you and do this as well. Um, it's also kind of funny, like I, I've noticed everyone says security is number one. Many, many teams say that. And I was just thinking like, there's no way that everyone is actually like security is actually number one for that many people, right? Um, and it's a bit of an unfortunate thing. It's just like crypto is this unique asset class that has so many uh, security considerations uh, that, you know, everyone wanting to build something has to be an expert in all these different things. But maybe someone just wants to build a cool, like, social app or a cool game. Uh, but And yet, they, security still has to be their number one priority. Um, but it's tough to do because not everyone can have, like, a, a background in, in risk management and uh, smart contract security, et cetera. Um, but what I'd say the biggest takeaway they should take from here is, uh, is that for Solend, the number one goal that we have is being practical about risk management. 
We'd rather save users from losing money unnecessarily than taking on some kind of uh, like theoretical stance uh, just because it's like correct by the books. Um, which, you know, shown in, in this example here, how we're using the, the Sol Oracle to price MSOL. Uh, basically, just given all the trade-offs, we feel that it's a, it's a safer choice for now. But in the future, when a uh, situation improves, then we can, we can uh, change that. As a listener to this show, I'm sure you own some soul. And if you do, the question is, are you staking it? If you want to get started with staking, you should check out Marinade, which is the most optimized way to stake your soul today. Staking by yourself and choosing one validator, that puts you at a lot of risk. You don't know if that validator goes offline. You have to constantly monitor it. You might not get the best risk-adjusted return. Instead, use Marinade, who monitors all the validators throughout Solana, then chooses over the top 100 best validators to delegate to. So all you have to do is go to Marinade. They'll automatically delegate your stake in the most optimized way across these validators, have the best risk-adjusted reward that's based on inflation, also fees, and MEV. So once you choose Marinade, there's two ways to do it. If you want to play with DeFi, they have a liquid staking token called MSOL, Marinade Soul. You just stake with Marinade, you choose the liquid staking option, and you'll get your capital back immediately that you can play throughout DeFi. Now, some people don't want that DeFi contract risk. They don't want that peg risk between the LST and the underlying asset. They just want to stake and earn rewards. Well, Marinade has a product called Marinade Native, which is a way for you to get the best parts of Marinade, but without that LST and DeFi risk. Marinade's been around for over two years. They have four audits from some of the top security firms in crypto, and they're also the largest LST provider in Solana. So why not get started today? Go check them out. Put a link in the show notes, go play around. You'll see why Marinade's only possible in Solana. And now let's get to the show. I agree. Obviously, we need to talk more about risk but uh, I'm I'm probably going to get a little spicy here because there's definitely a disagreement here, right? Like I, I think um, w- one of you believes um, the other's approach is maybe too theoretical or there's something that you would do differently. And so if we were to just dumb that down to anybody listening who doesn't understand our own lens, what, what is that core philosophical difference? Like what is causing all these disagreements between the two parties here? I think my hunch is that Selen has been around for a while and we went through many, many different incidents. So just to list a couple, uh, there was a lot of Solana downtime network issues. There's one that was like 17 hours, but for some time there was one like every week. And that was basically an incident for us. There were multiple Oracle mispricings that caused incidents. Um, And then later there was the depegging of UST. At the time, Solan had UST as, uh, as an asset listed. Uh, so that was a pretty crazy market scenario. There was a collapse of 3AC plus all the contagion. There was the collapse of FTX, of course. Uh, the price of Sol dropping from 250 to like $10 in a pretty short period of time. Uh, also with FTX, there was SoBTC uh, that just suddenly became unbacked and we had to deal with that. So... Basically, through dealing with all these issues, we found that like, the best way to protect against these things is to be very on top of things and quick thinking. And that you can try to prepare as much as you want. You can like, choose your oracles super meticulously, but something like it's not going to stop these things from happening. At the end of the day, there's going to be some uh, intervention that you'll have to take for these idiosyncratic type events that are like very hard to predict. And each one is super unique. Um, and I, I think this kind of goes back to what you're saying, Edgar, about Tarun's paper, where he mentioned that like things are, are very, uh, I forget how he, how he said it, but like, th- yeah, I think he was alluding to this basically that, uh, there are these very like one-off risks that happen. So I, I think this is what drives our philosophy on these things. 
Um, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think this is, you know, this touches on, um, I think you make a good point, right? There's like, there's a disagreement, but we're both saying the same things, right? Uh, both, I think both, both sides seem like they'd rather operate, uh, in a more practical way, in a more actionable way than a more theoretical way. Right. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree that, uh, looking at, uh, more tangible grounded data, making decisions based off that data is smarter. Right. Um, I think the, the, the things that we prioritize underneath that abstract layer, right how we actually go about doing that from our perspectives, I think is different, right? Um, you know, MarginFi is, is definitely newer than Solon, right? Uh, no question there. I've been working on risk engines for a little over a decade, right? Um, personally, uh, you know, started my career at Goldman Sachs, right? I was um, working on leverage risk models, looking at, uh, you know, it was a $90 billion platform at the time. We were talking about individual vehicles that were, you know, from like 300 million to like 7 billion in size. Uh, and we were looking at institutional LPs, how to solve that balance of risk and reward that comes with leverage for them, right? Uh, right right pa- uh, post, uh, post the recession, right? Uh, in an industry that was just absolutely scarred by the, the experiences that they went through in 08, where a lot of their theoretical assumptions fell apart, right? Um, I mean, you know, this is <laughs> maybe maybe not as spicy in this group, but like, you know, when I talk about why we decided to build on Solana, why we like high-performing infrastructure, right? I talk about how risk management, to, to Ruder's point about reacting quickly, talk about risk, how risk management is, is really like two things, right? Uh, if, you t- if you take an analogy, you're flying a plane, right? Let's say it's like a, you know, cool fighter jet, whatever. Uh, and you're flying through the fog. You kind of have you kind of have two things you can rely on to like not run into something, right? Uh, One is the sensors that you build, right? Sensors can tell you what's going on in the front and maybe you don't see it with your own eyes, right? Uh, But you have some idea, right? With some predictability of what's in front of you. Uh, And then the second thing that you have is you have this this steering wheel, right? Uh, Or, you know, whatever it's called in a plane. I should, I've been telling this analogy so much, I still don't know what the steering wheel in the plane is called. So that's my... I'll take that one on me. Uh, but at the end of the day, right? Like no matter how good your sensors are, if you're flying and your sensors don't catch something and something comes out of the clouds, you can jerk the steering wheel, right? And the speed at which your steering wheel reacts and pulls your plane to the side, that's critical, right? Uh, and, and both sides of, of this problem are important to work on, right? Our risk models, like I mentioned, the conditional value risk that we look at, the market depth, the depth recovery, those are our sensors, right? They give us, uh, you know, we look at, like I mentioned, tail risk scenarios. Uh, I think like Solana, for example, we assume that on any given day, Solana will drop 80%, right? Over the course of the next 24 hours, it's double the historical drop that we've seen Solana ever do, right? Uh, And that's just like a starting point for us, right? Um, That's fine. But at the end of the day, right, like no matter how good your sensors are, uh, you need a steering wheel that can jerk you in the right direction when things come out of the clouds. And I think that's actually a big part of that is high-performing infrastructure. Uh, that's Solana, right? It's also the high-performing liquidators that sit off-chain and that contribute to your protocol, right? Uh, we spend uh, quite a bit of time building high-performance infrastructure across the board. We've got a great team with you know relevant backgrounds for it. 
they really love the opportunities that that Solana and that you know the the, the infrastructure around it gives them to run. And I think that's a key part to to solvency risk. Um, so again, yeah, for me, you know, I because I, I, I listen to you know Ruder and I, and we're not the only ones, right? Saying a lot of the same like high level kind of principles. Uh, and, you know, to Ruder's point, like everybody in the industry says that security is number one, that risk management is, you don't see anybody being like, hey, I, you know, have a lending platform and I hope it blows up. I'm trying to build something that explodes. Like people are not going to say that, right? I think it, I think what it takes is going one step deeper and saying, okay, like, you know, do I align with this team's methodology? Do they seem to me like they're prioritizing it? Uh, and then, you know, thinking about your actions uh, from there. Edgar, I'd have two follow-up questions just for the audience. You talk about the speed of liquidations and how important that is. Can you explain, I'm assuming that's important because one, you don't want bad debt for the protocol. Um, and then also you need liquidator profitability. Can you talk about those two things and how important they are? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, I think liquidator profitability is the number one most important metric from the liquidator perspective, right? Uh, as a liquidator your job is to shoot for opportunities that you have to liquidate positions, right? Those opportunities are determined initially by protocol constraints, right? So, you know, on margin five, we have the concept of a health ratio. Uh, your health ratio goes below zero. You're exposed to liquidations. The protocol makes that decision, right? And from there, uh, it's on third-party liquidators, that are sitting outside of margin phi, right, the protocol, uh, to go ahead and liquidate your position. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because, you know, when folks think about risk management, uh, when it comes to lending protocols, they're often thinking about the protocol itself. Uh, but the protocol itself, uh, at least under traditional circumstances, can't liquidate positions entirely on its own, right? Like when a position you know, goes below zero, uh, you know, with its health ratio, in that moment, in that immediate moment, nothing happens, right? And it needs to wait for a third-party liquidator to come and liquidate that position. Uh, this is, you know, Gauntlet wrote about this in their article today. This is, this is, this can be framed as a principal agent problem. You can view liquidators as agents. Uh, they work, uh, they, they optimize for incentives that matter to them, Right. Uh, from a liquidator perspective, what matters to you is profitability. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, it sounds, it sounds kind of obvious, right? Like, okay, like, you know, we have a liquidator or there are a bunch of liquidators. They're going to go and liquidate for profitability. I think what really matters is understanding that, like, if liquidators are not confident in the moment that they will be profitable, uh, they won't choose to participate in a liquidation scheme, right? Uh, and that means that in the worst moments where uh, there are issues that cause liquidators to lose faith in their profitability or to, you know, run measurements against, uh, look at their analytics, recognize that they can liquidate, but they won't be profitable liquidating, right? Those are moments that we should expect liquidators not to liquidate. Uh, and we should expect those we should expect those parameters to be built into liquidators programmatically, right? Like if I'm building a liquidator myself, I'm just Edgar, the engineer, right? Uh, I am building a liquidator that will check to make sure I'm profitable on every single liquidation. And if I'm not profitable on that liquidation in a given moment, I'm not liquidating, right? And that means that I could be putting, I could, I could be uh, removing myself from a group of actors that's been relied on, right? 
uh, to maintain solvency for this lending protocol, right? I think this is like a really uh, important incentive problem to solve for. Uh, it is the crux of our risk engines. When we look at market depth, when we look at depth recovery time, uh, when we forecast tail risk scenarios there, uh, we are benchmarking everything we do off of the idea that liquidators will only take action if they are profitable and will immediately step out of the you know out of the game uh, if they find themselves to be unprofitable. I think this is like an incredibly important and still very under discussed part of lending protocols. Uh, and I think there's a lot more that can be done on the liquidator front to incentivize them from the protocol perspective. It's something that you know we hope to to, to push and speak a lot more about uh, at margin going forward. Um, but historically speaking, right, like uh, liquidator profitability, obviously, you know, I think a key metric. Um, you know, to touch on Gary, your mention of high performance and kind of of liquidators winning uh, those liquidations, right, in a situation where uh, the liquidator environment is competitive, right, the speed that your liquidator can operate at, how performant those trading systems are, right, uh, is critical towards your individual profitability as a liquidator, right? Uh, now, note that like it's a good scenario if liquidations are competitive, right? And generally speaking, in the good times, liquidations continue to be competitive. Lots of liquidators are shooting for those uh, profitable opportunities. Uh, what is important from our perspective, we, we think uh, less about... Um, you know, we think less about helping liquidators in profitable times, right? In good times, we think that the market will compete on its own there. I'm constantly thinking about tail risk scenarios, right? Like my entire day is waking up and going, all right, like Solana plummets 80% in a day, right? Market depth is at, you know, P95 bad, right? Uh, everything is, you know, everyone's pulling out, things are cascading, uh, we work with a team called Fibonacci Finance. If you guys are familiar, they provide a uh, decent amount of the data that we use for our systems. Uh, we've talked to them about contagion risk, right? Understanding how waterfall liquidations across platforms uh, in an ecosystem can affect uh, margin phi in this case, right? Uh, I think those tailor scenarios are pretty much uh, all that matters from a risk management perspective. Obviously, you balance business interests on the other side. Uh, but yeah, for me, I'm, I'm a lot more worried about you know what it takes for liquidators to continue liquidating when things get tough than I am uh, about what it takes for liquidators to win when things are good. I'm going to drink some of this. I got European McDonald's for the second time in my life. So if you see me with the Coke, it's uh, just taking advantage some some things I'd like to add there. Um, so I think it's important to clarify that it's not about the fastest liquidation. It's about the best execution as well. Um, because being the fastest just encourages spam. You get liquidators doing spray and pray. And they because of this, they use DEX-only liquidity and end up getting pretty bad execution. Uh, and especially for larger sizes. So like this is something we saw given that liquidations initially on Solan V1 were all about whoever lands first wins. Um, but in Solan V2, we changed it to this kind of auction model where basically the, the bonus that the liquidators get is slowly increasing over time. Um, and so 
whoever feels that they can, uh, you know, liquidate at with, with good execution such that it is profitable, uh, they're able to take advantage of that and uh, and win that liquidation. Whereas, like, let's say someone else who doesn't have access to centralized exchange liquidity um, has a lot of slippage, like they wouldn't be able to liquidate, uh, and so they 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 don't win that liquidation. So yeah, I just want to emphasize that it's not just about speed um, for liquidations, speed and execution as well. Another point that's I think pretty uh, pretty interesting I is that say, I like the I like the auction model. So nice, thank <laughs> it's you. Gonna, it's gonna give my support there. Good, nice. Um, so w- one thing we saw during the FTX crisis is that all of the third party liquidators basically left uh, because Solend was mostly run by uh, uh, the, the liquidations were mostly run by third party liquidators. Like when we first launched, we created a reference implementation of a liquidator that we open sourced and we encouraged people to take it, improve it and run them. Uh, and so we had many, many people running liquidators, uh, but it was very interesting that uh, yeah, they all left when, when there's a lot of uncertainty. So another key thing is that it's not just about profitability. It's about like the expectation of profit. Because during FTX, it was actually an extremely lucrative time to run liquidators and art bots. Um, you could have made in a day what you would have in like the whole year, if not more. Um, but a, a lot of people were just, uh, you know, there's so much uncertainty around uh, exchanges and just everything. Uh, so much chaos in the markets that... A lot of people just stopped liquidating and that was pretty problematic. Um, so yeah, since then we, we've improved our liquidator a lot. We have a super high performance liquidator and we also still have some, uh, third party ones that are, uh, competing and, and it's, you know, better for the whole system, uh, since it improves everyone. Uh, but yeah, we, we have like much, much better high performance uh, liquidation engine right now we run all of our risk models off of the idea that uh only the in-house liquidators that we manage ourselves on the core team uh, are operating we effectively assume that every third-party liquidator will leave uh if things get uncertain right uh which i think is is you know the it's, it's what you have to do because there's so much uncertainty and the expectation uh the sentiment can change so quickly right that relying on them i think is is, is dangerous from a risk perspective it's 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 a conservative view, but I think it's the right one. I don't know how much time, more time we have left on this, but there is some other stuff I want to touch on during this uh, episode, if, uh, if I may. Yep, go ahead. Okay, cool. So um, I guess to set the stage a little bit, the whole reason we're here is due to some Twitter drama, right? Um, so start off with uh, Ripley's from our team posting something about how we, uh, we do things technically, and then uh, McBrennan from your team retweeted it saying that, you know, this is why he's, forget the, the colorful language he used, but, uh, you know, it's kind of disparaging our risk management and whatnot, uh, why he's like terrified of, of whatever, um, rather than bringing this, this up to us uh, privately. And this kind of highlights a pattern that we've been seeing from MarginFi. Uh, basically, many examples of people from MarginFi making things up about Solend. Um, so some examples... Uh, a couple months ago, there was a tweet that was saying that all Solen TVL is just Alameda. Um, and of course, that's not true if you actually take a look at things. 
coupled with that was like, oh, so Len V2 has no TVL. It's all in V1, which also isn't true because it's an in-place upgrade. So, so it's the same liquidity. Um, and we even uh, were back-channeled by an ecosystem project that uh, you told OKX not to work with us because we're, quote, sketchy. Um, so this has been a, a pattern, and we have talked about this before, uh, Edgar, uh, one-on-one through DMs and in a call. And I remember you said like that you let people on the team speak their minds and that you try to verify everything internally as vigorously as possible, uh, which is a little bit hard to believe because some of these things are, uh, you know, very obviously not true and it doesn't take too much to actually verify them. Um, and basically our approach on this was that we just ignored all this for a long time, for months, uh, just hoping that it would go away, I suppose, or, you know, not thinking that it was uh, too big of a deal, but it really ramped up and continued. And it got to a point where we kind of had to respond because, um, you know, there's, you guys have been growing a lot. There's a lot of engagement on this type of stuff and it, it's been pretty damaging uh, as well. So, yeah, I, I'd like to address that. And um, basically, Edgar, like, we, we've chatted and like, I feel like you're a really good person and uh, the way that you act is especially is super different from other people on your team. Uh, but I want to point out that it creates a little bit of a good cop, bad cop routine, whether it's intentional or not, where basically you let like Brendan on the loose, making a lot of drama. Um, and then you're super nice about things, but you don't do anything to stop it. And in many ways, the inaction of doing anything about it, your inaction is endorsement in itself. And um, yeah, I think it'd be really great for everyone in the Solana ecosystem since I, I've gotten a lot of private DMs about uh, about this as well. Um, I think it'd be really good if we could set this aside and like, you know, we we never really came out attacking you guys. I think every time we've said anything, it's been in response. Um, so yeah, it would be, it'd be great to improve things for everyone. I think, uh, the drama is fun to watch for everyone. Got a lot of engagement on this, uh, podcast teasing, as you're saying before we start recording, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, this would be great to clear out, clear up and, you know, have a more collaborative, collaborative ecosystem going forward. We've had conversations about this internally, uh, you know, multiple times, definitely in the past week since, you know, since all this conversation has gone on, you know, we're the, the intention was never to antagonize anybody. Uh, the intention is not to run like a good cop, bad cop routine. Uh, you know, I am not going to say that our execution is perfect on anything, right? Um, we're constantly working on, on trying to improve the way that we do things. Uh, we disagree internally. Uh, on the team a ton. Uh, and I think with such ferocity that if, uh, if folks were part of the private conversations that we have, I think it, it help re them recognize how, um, how much we defend our own views and opinions, uh, internally amongst ourselves, right. Uh, as much as we, you know, talk about our perspectives publicly, uh, the one, Look, the one thing that maybe the thing that uh, I was thinking about, I was thinking about this, um, thinking about this over the weekend, maybe the thing that we'll disagree on the most is the value of private conversation versus public conversation. 
Um, and I think, you know, from an ecosystem perspective, like from a partnership perspective, uh, I do think finance is a multi-venue play. I think that's really important. It's a really strong belief I have. I think if MarginFi is the only lending platform on Solana or within the relevant space where, you know, we're compared, uh, I think that's a problem. I think it's a huge problem, right? I think there needs to be like a critical mass of multiple venues. And so all we want, right, is folks around us building uh, comparable solutions that we think are of, uh, of, of good quality, right? Or solutions that, you know, can take different implementations, but that we think generally speaking is of the right quality. Uh, that said, I think that public conversation is super, super important. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story from, you know, from, a, from a different kind of angle. Uh, we had, you know, a conversation with a team over the weekend. I won't mention who, uh, it doesn't really matter. They brought something up to us privately. And uh, they said, hey, you know, we're bringing this up to you privately, right? Uh, kind of in, in uh, you know, as a note to this private public conversation that has happened uh, last week off of Twitter. Uh, and I, and I got to be honest with you, my thought when I read that was, I wish you brought it up publicly, right? Because I think that the, I, I get the idea that this is creating unnecessary drama. I get that perspective. I think what's more important here is the fact that this is spurring public conversation and highlighting the, uh, you know, the opportunities for improvement uh, across the entire ecosystem, right? I have never felt better than this past week when, you know, a number of folks uh, from the Solent team and, you know, from other teams started like really poking at MarginFi, right? And finding like the smallest bugs. We've been we've been on fire. It's been great, right? I'm I'm sitting here. I'm going. This is this is what a community effort to really battle test the resiliency of something uh, feels like, right? Because to me, like all of this stuff is incredibly serious, right? There's you know 350 million dollars supplied in MarginFi today. It's one protocol in a sea in an industry of protocols, right? Uh, that's incredibly serious capital. Uh, in a space that has struggled for, uh, you know, validation from the mainstream, right? We're still incredibly early. We have a lot of institutional uh, players that are evaluating the resiliency of our platform, uh, of this industry in general. Uh, I'm not interested in meritocracy. I'm just not like from 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 the perspective of, hey, like you know, do the margin fi guys? Does the team try hard? Right? Do they put in work? Uh, I flew to Europe uh, to work in person with you know our CTO because we have work streams that we're pushing on in this moment. And I up and left and flew halfway around the world because sometimes like that's just what it takes, right? But it doesn't matter if we don't execute, right? And so I'm just extremely execution oriented. I've been in you know a lot of our guys come from mission critical industries, from mission critical backgrounds where we've seen people, great people, put in a ton of effort. And fail, right? Fail terribly sometimes, and sometimes at the cost of many people around us, right? And so, I guess we've just kind of, you know, as an organization, we've just learned not to think about much more than than execution, right? Now, you know, that said, I think we're happy to, you know, we've we've made the decision already internally that like 
We'll, we'll have conversations, you know, more privately. We're happy to, you know, put in more work to make sure that the right information is being uh, passed on and that the conversation is constructive. Right. Uh, but, but like, please, like to anybody watching this, anybody on this call, like if you guys see a flawed margin file, like put it on the front page of the New York Times every single time because I want to see it as fast as possible. I want to hear about it as fast as possible. And I want to give our team the opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to, to build around these issues, to fix them, to iterate and to show the uh, capacity that we have to build resilient systems. Yeah. Um, I, I guess one quick note, you, you mentioned that people, so Len had been uh, poking at margin phi and that we found the smallest bugs. I, I think it's uh a bit interesting to downplay like that because the bug actually was a value at risk, the issue with the wrapped staked ETH Oracle. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't uh, downplay it like that. I mean, it was the same but, Oracle situation that you guys had with with uh, with MSOL, right? No, no, it's quite like different. A, the, we, we can get into it. Um, basically, you guys are using the staked ETH Oracle price, which... That is uh, earlier at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the rebasing approach versus the uh, the asset that's increasing in price. So it was using the rebasing token price, which is basically pegged to ETH. It's like trades slightly above uh, just due to market stuff, um, maybe like 1.03. Uh, but then the actual wrapped stake ETH is like 1.15. Um, so that's like quite a significant difference. And... The asset actually was borrowable uh, on Solend. MSOL is not borrowable, and therefore underpricing it actually does open you up to, uh, you know, be people being able to borrow more than they should and just walk away, leaving leaving the protocol with bad debt. So it, it, it's quite quite a different uh, situation there. Um, and as for um, just the, the the general public discourse, I do agree with you that uh, putting things publicly is good. But I feel that the way that you guys have been doing it has been more slanderous than anything else. It's not really constructive, uh, especially given that a lot of things have just been flat out wrong, just made up. Um, and another thing I'd like to say is like, we basically had this conversation a couple months ago in private, and you were saying the same things that we're going to do better, we'll be constructive, I'm going to talk to the team. But nothing really changed. We continued having these kinds of issues. So like TBH, you know, I won't really believe this until I see it in your actions uh, in, in the next couple of months uh, publicly. So I think it's, it's really great what you're saying, but, uh, you know, I've kind of heard it before and didn't really uh, pan out. So, yeah. I'll, I'll check back in. We can make a public or private statement on the, uh, on the SC Oracle. I know it's an isolated pool for us. Um, my understanding is that we were, you know, this is all, this is all a conversation of, uh, Oracle abstraction effectively, right? And we were, uh, leveraging an Oracle abstraction very similar to what you guys are doing with MSOL and Soul. Um, again, I will check in on the details there. I know that bug was fixed. Uh, I'm glad it got brought up. Again, I'm going to come back to my perspective. Like I'm glad it got brought up. I'm glad it got brought up publicly. I'm glad it brought, got brought up as soon as possible, right? Uh, there were there were there were other UI bugs that you know have been highlighted. We've got a three thousand person Telegram community, which 
you know, puts just as many messages into the Telegram a day that's constantly highlighting other issues. I wasn't just talking about the the Solend effort, although I'm, you know, grateful for your guys' contribution. Um, look, I think I, I, you know, we we are going to continue to, uh, in, on my mind is the solvency of MarginFi, right? Uh, I want lenders to maintain their solvency. I want them to be able to get their funds back. I want borrowers to have a good experience on the platform. Uh, you know, I think uh, I'm happy to continue to like, you know, manage like ecosystem relationships appropriately. Uh, I think if the success of uh, anything we're doing comes down to the relationships of like a few few people, I think we've failed massively on the decentralization front, right? And so all I'm thinking about is like the autonomous systems that that we're building. That's really what's on my mind. I am hoping that we can uh, have uh, better relationships in the future. Um, I did want to kick that off a little bit by saying three things that I like about about MarginFi. Um, so number one, I saw your light mode. I think it's a really great idea and quite well executed. Um, I think, yeah, it really simplifies the UI for, for new users. I think you guys are a really ambitious team who ship a lot. Um, you guys are super active and yeah, you've been doing a lot of things. And third thing is you've had some really impressive growth, which, you know, have to commend that. So yeah, hopefully, uh, this can be a, a good kickoff to a better relationship. I just want what's best for the Solana ecosystem. And I think. A more collaborative environment is better for everyone. Well, I, I appreciate the the compliments. Um, you know, I know the team worked super hard on the on the the new UI look. Uh, you know, code is open source, right? Please feel free to uh, you know reference it if it becomes interesting. That's you know that's to you and, and anybody else who's who's listening and interested in it. Uh, we're always experimenting with you know with new things. Uh, I will say that um, the 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 Solend UI is still my personal favorite. Uh, it just makes I don't know. I just like it. Uh, but you know, we're, we're not building for me. And I, uh, I often disagree with, you know, a number of, uh, a number of perspectives across the team. And that's why we have a world-class design team, world-class, uh, you know, front end engineering team that, you know, I think kind of leads, leads that effort. Um, they're much better at me than those things at those things. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think this is, this is definitely a collaborative industry, right? Um, you know, we, in anything we do, we, we do with intention. We'll continue to do that. The execution, uh, you know, will be, uh, as good as we can make it and we'll continue to make it better. Well, guys, I think that was really well said. And thank you for both coming on. I think that says a lot. I, I know we probably want to close up, but I have something that I promised the research analyst that I'd ask you guys. Um, this has to do a little bit more in just like looking forward and kind of the future of lending protocols. Um, Edgar, you mentioned that you prioritize, for example, liquidity providers or the lenders um, on your protocol. And one thing that we've been seeing happen in Ethereum and some of their spaces is professionalization of the LP providers. So like Uniswap is a very good example. It went from kind of being a lazy LP to now you have to actively manage your position with concentrated liquidity. And then we've also seen Blur, um, they have their product Blend that relies on sophisticated actors to provide liquidity as well, which is like customized LTVs and which assets you want to provide. I'm curious on how you think 
the future of lending on your protocols will look like will the LPs continue to be in this position where you just assume it's almost a lazy position to just provide liquidity. Um, and maybe with that, I don't know if this is part of it or not, but you, ha- you mentioned that concept of cross collateralized pools versus isolated pools. And maybe if you could tie those together and just how you think the future uh, of your protocols will look like. I, mean, I think this, the, we've seen an interesting trend in the lending space that uh, people start off risk on when they're new. And then they become more and more risk off as they operate. Um, so many, many examples of this. Um, one example is compound V3, which, uh, really added more restrictions in V3 than in V2, um, to isolate risk better. And I think this is a, a really interesting trend. And I've been thinking a ton about that after, uh, the chaotic markets that we saw last year around this time. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about like P2P kind of order book based, um, loans and kind of similar to what Blur has done with, uh, Blend. And basically, you know, the problem with pool to peer, which is the, the, the model that we're all using right now is that the pool, the, the, the risk is pooled by everyone. Um, and like you don't know who your counterparty is, right? Your counterparty is everyone else in the pool, which could be, could be anyone. It could be uh, a really safe guy who manages their position very well, or it's like a you know turbo degen. Um, and uh, by by employing a more P two P strategy, you can limit you know your risk exposure a lot more because you you have more control over who your counterparty is. So yeah, it's been something that we're we've been thinking about a lot. And um, I, I, I do believe that uh, it, it's yet to be explored uh, enough. Like we haven't seen enough of that yet, but I, I know some uh, projects are, are doing something some in that vein, like uh, Morpho um, and Ajna. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but yeah. And we're, we're looking into that as well. We, we've been uh, having a lot of discussions internally about how to design something like this that doesn't, uh, uh, like reduce the UX, right? Uh, because the the V2 model in which everything is pooled, it, the reason why it's so strong is that it's super, super capital efficient, right? Um, and that counts for a lot in terms of usability. So it's uh, it's great if you can make a super secure thing, but I guess like the most secure thing in the world is a rock, right? But how useful is a rock? Um, I mean, maybe not the best example because we built cities out of them, but... Uh, you know, like if if it's just a brick, like if it has no functionality, it's unhackable. But yeah, how useful is that? Ruder, is it fair to say that having P2P actually reduces an attack vector? Because right now you have governance controlled by tokens. And I actually know like a year ago with Solend, we had, there was an issue with the whale um, making some votes on chain. Um, and right now, like for different lending protocols, you use on-chain voting with tokens to determine what the LTVs are, what assets should be added, et cetera, because you're looking at this pool model and it controls that risk for everyone that's providing liquidity versus this P2P, every liquidity provider gets to choose for themselves. Yeah, definitely. Uh, governance is a really important aspect of this. Um, I think that ungovernance is a is a very is an idea that has a lot of merit to it. Um, if you have a system that doesn't require intervention, that is super good for many reasons. People can build on top of it without having to be worried about that, about things changing underneath them, and um, you know the the security assumptions are made super explicit up front 
Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's a tricky situation here as well because uh, like the the DAO risk governance model uh, is is quite difficult to pull off well. Um, like we see on uh, on Ethereum, like Aave, they have a, a DAO to for any any small um, change to parameters requires this you know elaborate voting process, and we we saw this being a real issue with the Curve incident, where the founder had a massive position, and um, you know everyone on Twitter knew that something had to be done about it. Gauntlet, uh, you know, I'm sure they. Uh, identify this problem ahead of time, but it's like they can't really, they couldn't really do anything about it uh, because they had to go through this governance, which actually even got rejected. Like their suggestion to um, mitigate things uh, was rejected in the name of uh, decentralization. And on uh, on Solana, we've seen projects take a different approach, where um, the uh, labs, basically, the lab entity is the risk manager. Um, and does, you know, a lot of sophisticated work to ensure that things are running smoothly. Um, but I think a, a different approach is to just do away with all of this, uh, voting process entirely. Um, obviously there's some real trade-offs here. Uh, but I think it's a very interesting model that the market could, could use, you know, a little bit more diversity. I have a final question. Um, this is for the DGENs, so I'm I'm sure you can predict what's coming. Um, so I'm curious now that DeFi 2.0 is back, right? Uh, you you both tweet pretty uh, uh, positively about DeFi being back, and Solana is kind of uh, seeing this new wave of growth. What do you think the um, role of tokens will play in the next um, year for the ecosystem, and how do you guys? What is your what is your philosophy on like this points and in, in token? Um, Meta and Solana teams launching them more and more. Yeah. Um, look, I think tokens are really important in crypto. They're the lifeblood. Um, it, like, we wouldn't be where we are today as an industry without tokens bringing people in, all this excitement. Um, and yeah, Points is this new meta that has emerged in the last year basically pioneered by Blur as they took on uh, OpenSea. They, they added a points program to, you know, create a lot of hype and tease, uh, tease a token launch. And I think it works really well, but it can be a little bit problematic, especially when the period is so extended. Uh, this period of just building hype, building hype, uh, you know, no token yet, no token yet. Um, and if it's if the points program is just a, a placeholder for some planned token launch with like a defined timeline, I think it's okay if it's like a short period of time. But the way that uh, some projects have been have been taking advantage of points has been a little bit predatory, in my opinion, where it feeds off of the high expectations from users uh, who basically it's a complete black box for them. They have no idea what they're going to get. Um, like everyone, it's kind of this unspoken thing. Everyone knows that they're farming for tokens. Uh, so you can't just say like, uh, you know, don't use the platform if you don't want to farm or don't expect anything. Cause like everyone knows it's like the, the quiet part, right? Like 
everyone everyone knows that people are farming this for tokens. Um, but yeah, basically the parts where um, the payoff, the, like the actual rewards are unknown and the timeline is arbitrary and can like all these things can also be changed retroactively. Uh, specifically, like let's say a project was uh, intending to uh, give out a certain amount of rewards, but then prices pump by 5x, then they can just like reduce the, the rewards that they end up paying out by 5x um, rather than letting the users get the, the benefit. So uh, the way that Solen has approached uh, incentives is initially we had a liquidity mining program where we just paid out tokens for uh, incentivizing certain behaviors on the platform. And then more recently, we turned that into a points program where we would give out a basket of rewards. So in the last uh, round, the last season, we gave out Solen tokens, Pith tokens, and also Tensorians, which uh pretty pretty crazy. They're at 110 soul now. Um, but our approach has been quite different in that like from the start, we were upfront about what the rewards are going to be. We said it's going to be minimum this, uh, and that's not going to change. I mean, it could go up, where, and we, it did. We added more rewards later as we finalized partnerships, but it can never go down. And the timeline is known up front. Like we said, it would be three months, and, and the rewards actually were distributed three months later. So I think um, it, I, I don't think points are going away anytime soon because it's such a like superpower for projects to use. Uh, but I, I do think it's a little bit uh, an abuse of of this by uh, like leading people on for so long. Um, and you know, I, I wish for users that we would not do this. But I, I, you know, I don't really see that happening because it's just like too profitable for projects to keep doing this. But what, what I've been trying to do on Twitter and in uh, different venues is put some pressure on this to hopefully uh, change the, the view on this. And, you know, maybe one day we'll all agree that uh, points are bad, which there, there's been a lot of uh, discussion around this, especially recently, um, that it, it's, uh, it's not the, the best for users. And we can hopefully evolve to something that actually is fair for everyone. Look, um... Points are not new to crypto, right? Or sorry, they're new to crypto. They weren't invented in crypto, right? Uh, incentive systems have existed long before Web3. Uh, what you see with incentive systems uh, that specifically pertain to startups, and I'm thinking about, you know, the, the good things and the mistakes that I've seen in you know, my time at Uber, uh, my time in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, around that, um, my time you know, in crypto as a user, as an observer, my time as a participant in crypto, uh, is that um, creating closed end incentive systems uh, is a valuable opportunity to capture uh, long-term users who uh, really integrate into using your product, who integrate into your community, who ultimately are the foundation, the bedrock, right, of uh, the platform that uh, that grows, right? Um, incentive systems also can be super dangerous. They can muddy success metrics. Uh, they can uh, mislead teams and communities into thinking that there's product market fit where there's not. Um, and they can entirely change the type of user who uses your platform. 
right? Uh, which uh, can just completely change the experience, especially in you know in, 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 in with products that have strong market effects, strong network effects, uh, like those in crypto, right? Uh, it can completely change the experience for all users on a platform. Um, I mean, look at look at what happened after the the Gito token launches, right? Uh, everybody uh, from outside of Solana hears about airdrop farming, right? And a number of spammy, uh, you know, user archetypes start uh, permeating this ecosystem, right? Um, it's not healthy if those uh, those folks farming airdrops are not uh, intending to be uh, long-term users, right? If they uh, don't become long-term users, it's just a pump and dump. Crypto has seen this a thousand times, right? Um, look, from my perspective, like, you know, MarginFi is a decentralized protocol in the making, right? Uh, fundamentally, that means that a token has to exist and, uh, and has to, uh, should uh, fuel the operations of a decentralized protocol, right? Uh, be involved in governance, be involved in utility, um, we've seen interesting models with protocols leveraging native tokens as, um, you know, forms of gas within the protocol, um, other types of like really interesting kind of dimensions of utility. Uh, governance has, has been a longstanding worst stream in crypto. Uh, there have been some decent governance architectures. There have been a lot of unhealthy ones. We think that much more effective ones can be designed in the future. Uh, but the the key thing that I'm thinking about, right, is uh, rewarding users who are contributing to the the foundation and the infrastructure that is becoming MarginFi, right? Uh, I'm not interested in uh, inefficiently spending incentive capital, uh, whether that's tangible capital, whether that's social capital, um, I'm just not interested in it, right? Uh, there are tons of pump and dumps, uh, tons of opportunities for, you know, uh, free mercenary money uh, in crypto. I think, you know, all of that is arbitrage. That is a mark of an inefficient ecosystem that is getting more efficient over time, right? Arbitrage always closes. It's fundamentally the nature of arbitrage is that as systems become more efficient, uh, you know, that arbitrage opportunity gets smaller, uh, where real wealth is built, where it's compounded and where quality of life is improved is in growing the actual pie, right? Uh, in actually creating and compounding value. Uh, and incentive systems should be just an input to that, right? When you look at how successful incentive systems have worked outside of crypto, right? Um, where we've seen kind of the most mature incentive systems, you see that incentivizing long-term uh, contribution, long-term participation, uh, often with more abstract value proposition, right, uh, is what is most effective, right? Because generally speaking, mercenaries have extremely low risk tolerances. They're looking to quantify how much they can make on a very short timeline so they can get in, get out, do something else, right? I don't think that's healthy for early stage projects, right? Uh, as an early stage project, why would you be interested in capturing that mercenary, 
usage, that mercenary liquidity uh, for what ultimately is a really short time period, right? I think what's much healthier is to attract the people that are in it for the long run. And then importantly, uh, provide a system that rewards them with compounded wealth in the long run, right? Uh, and so that like, when I think about point systems, that's really what I think about. But point systems to me are just like a subclass of incentive systems more broadly, right? Uh, now look, like across the whole industry, there's, I think, I think points like, you know, kind of took off, right? Um, you know, Blur did it, we did it, uh, Jito did it, everybody started doing it. Um, and there's a lot of copycats, right? That folks, teams that are just implementing things, I think without like a principled vision, um, you'll always have that, right? And I think those systems are, are bound to disappoint. Um, you know, again, like it, it, this is one of the, 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 uh, important values of having a free market of having permissionless systems. Like people can choose and propose to do what they want to do. Uh, and, uh, the community, the general public can respond accordingly to it. Right. Uh, so I'm not going to argue for, you know, the censorship of permissionless systems. I think permissionless systems are incredibly important to keep permissionless. Uh, I will say that, you know, there are some folks doing this in a, in a principled fashion with long-term vision. Uh, and, you know, there are folks who are not doing that. Well said. Um, well, I can say this at least with the uh, airdrop season and also point season, it's way more fun. So <laughs> we'll take the good and the bad of it. But uh, that was really well said. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. I think this is really important conversation to have. And also just for the ecosystem and other projects in the space. I know it's, you know, there's some drama on Twitter. I think this conversation was awesome. And you, I like, personally learned a lot from both of you on this. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Anytime. And uh, Edgar, uh, let me know what size shirt uh, McBrennan wears. I'll send him a Solent shirt. <laughs> he's a he's a he's an extra large he's a men's extra large all right so i think we got some of those <laughs> yeah i'll take it. one of if those we if we gave out margin merch i would uh i would i would give you some but we don't uh it's kind of kind of a principle of ours the only way you get margin merch is to join the core team so uh you know i don't want to break policy but maybe in the future all right, guys. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, we'll see you next time. All right. I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. Get 20% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed20 when you sign up. All right. I'll see you there. And I'll see you next time on Lightspeed.